Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading this morning Luke chapter 2, if I can find it. There we go. Verses 41 through 52. This is God's Word. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, Why have you treated us so? Bold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, as we look once again at your word, I ask that you would guide us by your spirit. Illumine our hearts and minds that we may rightly understand your word. Strengthen me by your spirit that I may proclaim boldly and clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might find rest in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a story that... uh, probably familiar to you of, of Jesus being left at the temple, forgotten, you know, kind of all of that. Uh, and, and so here's how we're going to uh, approach through this story. We're going to look at some of the, the kind of key ideas of the story and just lay out kind of, hey, here's what happened. Uh, and then we're going to look at the parents and kind of zoom in on them and, and see what we can learn about that whole situation. Uh, then we're going to look at Jesus in particular. And then finally, we'll spend some time kind of uh, pressing some of this stuff down into our hearts if, uh, if the Spirit so warrants it. So first of all, just looking at the story. It starts off, and, and as Luke has been doing all along, he's setting this story in the context of the Old Testament without being kind of overly explicit about it. And this is actually one of his more explicit statements. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. So the Feast of Passover we just read in Deuteronomy 16, one of the, the places where we get the instruction. We also find it in Exodus 12 where it's instituted in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23. But, but the Feast of Passover was, was kind of one night uh, where they would kill the Passover lamb and eat it and all of that. But then it immediately the next day went into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this whole festival, this whole kind of festival cycle was all about remembering God's redemption. It was all about remembering that God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that that he had kept his promise. Because if if you remember, that all goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. 
We, we always talk about the, the parts of the Abraham account. I'll give you a land. I'll give you a name, blessing to all the nations and all that. But there's these other promises embedded in the Abrahamic covenant that don't get near as much airtime because they're not as exciting. Because one of those promises is you're going to be slaves for 400 years in a land not your own. We get less excited about that one. And, but, but then he says, but then I will deliver you out of that land. So, so when we look at the story of the Exodus, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's this inherently gracious act of, of God keeping his promise for his people. And so the Feast of Passover was, was a reminder of that. It was retelling and replaying this story every year that God kept his promise. He did what he said he was going to do. He is a trustworthy God. He's full of steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, and we're right to trust him. And so every year they would go to Jerusalem and celebrate this festival. And in some ways, it's kind of like what, what we do at Easter. We'll have special services and we'll talk about the resurrection. And, and we do that because it's a time where we purposefully and explicitly remind ourselves, God did it. He kept his promises. Death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. The devil has been vanquished. We have life in Christ. And, and yes, we, we hear about the work of Christ every week when we come to church and hear the gospel, but, but, but we set that day apart, the Easter Sunday, to celebrate God kept his promise. And it's a similar thing that's happening at the Passover. And it's actually at the Passover, that, that the passage that we just read earlier in John chapter 2 and 3, it's at the Passover that Jesus shows up at the temple and clears the temple. Because, because what he's doing, he's, he's showing up at what's supposed to be a celebration of God's provision of redemption, of God's care for his people. But what his people had done was turned it in to a prophet for themselves. And Jesus was not impressed. And so he clears the temple out. And, and it, that's the setting that we get the story of Nicodemus and the new birth. It's the, the setting in which we get the, the announcement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's in the context of remembering God as a redeeming God that all of those stories are told. And that's wholly appropriate because that's what all of those stories are really about, is that God is, in fact, a redeeming God. So, so that's the, the setting, the, the kind of historical setting of this passage that we're looking at. They've been to Jerusalem. It's a week-long festival. The first day is they celebrate Passover and have the Passover meal. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they eat no leaven and all of that for, for six days. And they have a, a big celebration on the seventh day and a, a convocation, a, a worship service. And then they're all heading back home. But as we read the story, we find out that it doesn't quite go the way you think a story like this would go. Because Jesus purposely stays behind. So, so maybe it's a little bit, you know, uh, taking a little bit of liberty to say that his parents forgot him, but they were at least like unaware that their child wasn't with them. Now, the, the journey from uh, Jerusalem up to Nazareth is basically straight north, and it's about 85 miles. And, and they would have been walking it, so it would have taken, if Google Earth is right, I don't know if they used Google Earth, but it would have taken about... Um, 32 hours to, to make that walk, right? So a few days they would be walking. So Jesus stays, and, and at some point, it tells us at the end of the day, probably they're like, okay, let's figure out where we're going to stay, all of that, make sure we've got everybody counting, you know, all the kids. They're like, Jesus isn't here. They're asking all the relatives, all their friends, like, we thought he was with you, we thought he was with them, we thought he was with whoever. 
and he's, he's not there. So they head back to Jerusalem. Three days later, I didn't dig into this. It, it actually just dawned on me like there's probably some, you know, I don't know, biblical theological significance that three days later Jesus shows back up. I'll let you explore that. But Jesus is found. Jesus is found. And then he returns home with his parents. Then we get this summary statement at the end. Similar summary statement to what we have with, with John the Baptist. Similar summary statement to what we have with Samuel. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And, and, and you see, like on, on the one hand, just this beautiful picture of the humanity of Christ. That, that here was this 12-year-old boy that had to grow up. Here was this 12-year-old boy that had to learn some stuff. But, but you also see this other picture that, that here was this 12-year-old boy that, that apparently was absolutely schooling the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and everybody in the temple. Because there's a detail, if you were listening close, you notice it said that he was there and he was asking all kinds of questions, right? And, and, and so at first you might think, oh, that's like when kids start asking questions in the children's sermon and I do everything I can to shut it down so that, I, so that y'all don't know how little I actually know. Because kids have a way of asking questions that you're like, I have, I've, never, I've never even read that in any theologian I've ever read. Where did you come up with this, right? But then it says they were astonished at his answers. In other words, the scene that is given is Jesus is posing these questions that apparently he's also having to answer for them. And their, their minds are being blown. Because they don't... So, so this is like a 12-year-old kid. And there he is answering these questions. So, so let's look at this. Let's look at what's going on with the parents when they find him. They, they, they walk around, and if you're a parent, you know there's some amount of pressure that comes with being a parent. You've got these people that are dependent on you for life. And, and, and like the younger they are, the more dependent on you they are for everything that they need. And I mean, there's a certain amount of pressure that comes with that. You've got to keep them alive, right? Well, by the time they get to 12, there's some freedom that has probably developed. And, and they're like, okay, our, our group, our crew, we're heading back north. We know all these people and like, yeah, he's probably just hanging out with his friends. He clearly sees this mob of people leaving that's all his, like, friends and relatives. And they all just start walking. But Jesus isn't with them. And they don't make sure that their child is with him. Now, that may seem reasonable to some of you. I've already confessed that it seems entirely reasonable to me that, like, you might not count closely one time or another, Right? But this is the savior of the world that we're talking about. Like at some level you think like, man, like the pressure of just keeping a regular child alive is high. But Mary and Joseph have been tasked with being parents to who they've already been told will be the king of all of Israel that will save the world from sin and death and the devil that will turn oppression on its head. And they're like, here... You keep this kid alive. And then they forget him. Like there's some kids that you can understand. Like maybe they're like super quiet or, and you're like, okay, I see how like that one slipped by. There's other kids that for other reasons you can understand. But this is the savior of the world. 
You would think if you were going to pay attention to anybody and make sure you knew where he was and that he was safe, it's the hope of Israel. Like, leave James in Jerusalem. Like, Luther and the rest of us would have been great with that. But they left Jesus. They left Jesus there. And so they go back and they're looking for him. And this is their, their response. This is their response when they find him. Son, why have you treated us so? That's the most honest parent answer ever. You forget your kid at the park. You realize it when you get home. You go back. Why weren't you paying attention when we said it was time to leave? Why didn't you come get in the car? I don't know, Mom. I don't know, Dad. Maybe it's because there's 150 other kids and we're all running around screaming at the top of our lungs and your voice doesn't carry that well. Why didn't you make sure I was in the car? But this is exactly what Mary and Joseph do. To their son. I, I know this can be a loaded term, but they just absolutely gaslight the Savior of the world. <laughs> Why did you treat us like this? It's amazing, isn't it? What, what's behind that? What we, we learn in the next question. Behold, or the next statement, your father and I so it's Mary that's saying this. No comment. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. There we find out what's going on. They're responding to their son from their own fear and their own pain. Does that sound familiar? They're responding to, the, to their son from their own fear and their own pain. Now, now contextually, we know from reading the story of, of, of Jesus in, the, in Luke's gospel, they knew who their son was. They had been told multiple times by Simeon, by Anna, by the angel that appeared. They knew who their son was and what he was going to do. But they're still able to respond to him in their fear. And that's what we do, isn't it? How often is, is that how we're responding to life? Whether it's our kids or our spouses or our, our coworkers or our neighbors or the news or whatever. How often is it that, that we're responding from a place of fear? And, and here's, here's how you can know you're doing that. You bear no fault in something that you clearly bear fault in. That's how you can know you're responding in fear and self-protection. When, when you've left the Savior of the world somewhere and you show up and say, how could you do this to us? You sinless child. <laughs> then you know you're responding from self-protection and from fear. So let's look at, at, at Jesus' response to all of this. 
first of all, we see, and, and, and I've already mentioned this, but he's just absolutely blowing folks' minds at the temple. He's asking questions that apparently he's also answering. And, and it tells us that, that all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In other words, he is just schooling all the people that are supposed to be the ones that know what they're talking about, and they don't have an answer for him. For this 12-year-old kid, not even yet in, in, in Jewish culture, not even yet considered an adult, just schooling him. And they don't know what to do with him. And so they just listen. His parents find him, gaslight him, and this is his response to him. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, let's pause for a second and, and like all be, be nerds together, okay? So in all the like modern English translations, it says, I must be in my father's house. When you go back and read the Greek, as you do, um, you notice two things. One, house isn't there. Like, it doesn't say anything about his father's house. It's in toys, patra, move. I, I must be in the things of my father. Right? So, and what's interesting, some people say, well, it's clearly that this is a, a locational thing, conversation, like they're looking for, they're trying to figure out his location. So him answering with, this was my location, didn't you know that? Like, that seems obvious. Like, why? I mean, it, so, so, so basically we would read it saying, why did it take you three days to find me? In Jerusalem, which is built entirely around this temple, where the presence of God is supposed to dwell, though it never resettled on the second time. Where else in Jerusalem did you think I was going to be, Mom and Dad? Clearly, I was going to be at the temple. And, and there's a sense in, in which that makes sense. The problem is, it doesn't actually say I was in my father's house, and twice, that, that Greek um, definite article is in the plural, not the singular. And the temple was one thing. And so some people think that, that the King James, and I'll, I'll own it here, got it right. Right? This is a place where I, where I prefer the King James. Because it says something, I forget how it says it, but basically there's a footnote in the ESV and in all modern translations that says, I must be, didn't, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know that's what I had to be doing? I had to be doing in toys. I had to be in the things of my father. I had to be doing what I was called here to do, what I was sent here to do. And I think, I think that's really the, the point here. Even if you take it in my father's I, he it's still, the, the point is, I've got to be doing what my father called me to do. I've got to be about my father's business. Didn't you know that? So, so in other words, he's, he, he's putting this back on his parents where it should be. And, and he's essentially saying, have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten that I came for a very particular reason that has to do with what we were celebrating at the Passover? That it has to do with the redemption of people? That has to do with, with me fulfilling the, and, and bringing about this new exodus that we're celebrating? So, so it raises the question, well, what, what are the things of his father? That, that he was supposed to be about, that he was supposed to be doing. 
And if you look up all the places where he talks about my father, you could look it up a bunch of different ways. That's how I chose to. Uh, you see a number of things. I've got seven different things here that he says in relation to his father and his father's will, where Jesus describes his work and his life in relation to it being his father's will. And these are the things that, that, that he had to do. One, the first thing you come across when you do this is his job was revealing the father to people. Letting people come to a, a true understanding of who God was as their father. As one who loves them. As one who was working out their redemption from before all time. As one who sent his only begotten son into the world that they might have life. That, that, was, that was part of what Jesus was to be about when he was about his father's business. It was a letting us know, letting his people know what kind of father you actually have. That, that, that he's the God of, of grace and mercy and steadfast love. That, that he's a God who, who so loves you and so loves the sinners that, that, that he sent his only son into the world. That whoever would believe in him would have life. Jesus' job being about his father's business was revealing that to people. Perhaps that's what he's doing, blowing people's minds in the temple. Reminding them how God actually is towards them as a father. The other thing that we see is his job in relation to what his father sent him to do was to give people rest. Come to me, all who are, who are who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the ultimate Sabbath, the author of Hebrews tells us. In Him, we find a true Sabbath rest where we can truly rest from our works forever. Forever. Because He's accomplished all of it. That was what He was saying, was to give us rest. We see that, that his job, this is repeated over and over, was to, to give the kingdom of God to people. In, in the men's study, we're going ever so slowly through the, through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've made it almost through the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. See, that's what Jesus came to do, was to give us the kingdom. This kingdom that, that, that is secure forever. This kingdom that has no end. This kingdom that won't be undone. This kingdom where scarcity isn't an issue. This kingdom. This kingdom where the ruling principle is love and grace and mercy. This kingdom where true justice is done perfectly. Jesus came to give that to us. To invite us into that. To bring us into that. He came, it's said over and over, to give life to the dead. We, we see this in explicit points um, with Lazarus, where he literally calls a, a physically dead person back to life. But over and over and over, we see this, this metaphor of being dead in our sin. And what Jesus came to do was give us life in him. Because he fully satisfied for all of our sins. He came to keep his father's commandments, to perfectly fulfill the law. He came to make known to us what he had heard from his father. He came finally to drink the cup of the father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. 
That was how he would give us life. Is he would take the death that we deserve for our sin. As it tells us, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So, so when he says, didn't, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? What is his father's business? It can be summed up in this word. I had to be about redemption. I have to be. Everything I do is about that. It's about the redemption of my people. That's what I was sent to do. But then there's this other statement that he makes that's embedded in there. He says, didn't you know that I must be? Day is the Greek word that is, is necessary for me to be about this. I have no other option, Jesus is saying, but to be about my father's business. I can't do anything but that. I'm, I'm wholly bound by his will for me. We see that if, if, if we just limit this search to Luke, we see uh, in Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, but he said to them, I must preach, same word, I must preach. It's necessary that I preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He had no other option but to proclaim this good news of the kingdom. We skip over to, to chapter 9, verse 22 of, of Luke's gospel, and we read this. And, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must, it is necessary, same word, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's necessary to his work that that happened. We skip over to Luke chapter 17, verse 25. We see a similar statement where, where he says, but first he must, same word, it is necessary for him to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Suffering and rejection were necessary for Christ. That, that was, if he was going to be about his father's business, that's what he was going to endure for you and I. We skip on over to Luke chapter 19, verse 5. And this is the story of Zacchaeus, and, and this is what he says. And, and I think there's a, a singular picture here that is indicative of something bigger. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus hurry and come down, for I must stay. I must stay at your house today. It's necessary. Now, here, here's an, a, a particular instance of Jesus moving toward a sinner in love that I think is indicative of what it was that he came to do. He came to be that intimate, that close, to, to move toward us to that degree. I must stay at your house today. I have to do it. I have no other option. Why? Because I am here on my father's business. And his father, or his business, has everything to do with redeeming sinners. And so I must come to your house. And I must stay with you. And, and that, of course, his, his moving towards sinners in this way ties in intimately with his being rejected by his generation. Can you imagine if the church continued that way? Moving towards sinners in such a way that we were rejected by, by the, the religious uppity-ups of, of our own generation. 
because we were so about our Father's business of moving towards sinners for the purpose of redemption. Not that we're redeeming them, but that we might announce to them the one who is. Not moving towards them to condemn them, but to announce the God of love to them. I must stay with you, saying, I must come to your house. Luke 22, verse 37, we we see another statement of necessity in Jesus' ministry where he says this, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. It, It was necessary that he be hung on the cross with sinners as a sinner. It was necessary to his work. It was necessary to him completing the father's business that he be counted that way. Finally, in Luke 24, we see a number of statements that that culminate in verse 44. In verse 7, where where he he says that it's necessary that he be, be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise. In verse 26, that that he suffer, it's necessary that he suffer and enter into glory. And then in verse 44, it's necessary that he fulfill all that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That it was necessary that he do this. And and there on the road to Emmaus, we we have kind of the, the gospel of Luke bookended with it's necessary. He's in the temple being about his father's business, schooling people in the ways of God. And that's kind of the front bookend of Luke's gospel. And the back bookend is him schooling people in the way of God on the road to Emmaus, reminding them, no, it's still necessary that I be about my father. It was necessary that I was about my father's business, that I fulfill everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the writings. And, and so Luke is giving us this, this kind of brackets for his, for his gospel of, of, I think, how we're to understand the whole thing. That, that it was necessary that Jesus come and be about his Father's will, which was redeeming his people, you and I, and, and, and all who would come to him, redeem by fulfilling the word of God. It was necessary that he be about his Father's business. And in the middle of all that, his parents are saying, how did you treat us this way? And he didn't respond, oh, you mean redeem you? (laughs) Like all of us would have responded? But it says, he then submitted to him and went home with him. So let's apply this a little bit. First, like Mary and Joseph, we often don't understand what Jesus is doing. Can we admit that? We look at our lives not going the way we thought they should. Not going the way we thought they would. Not going the way we wanted them to. And we often don't understand what Jesus... To to, to the point, to the point, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I think we should call out to God with such honest confession. But but to the point that that we call out, why are you treating me like this? What have I done? Why are you doing this to me, God? Where are you right now in in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this despair? Why did you let me fall into this sin? I didn't want to do this. Where the heck are you? 
we, we often don't understand what Jesus is doing in our life. And we call, and we should be that honest. But, but we need to admit that when we're being that honest, it's because we don't understand what's going on. And, and, and here's why I think this is the case. Here's why I think that, that we, we don't understand what Jesus is doing in our life. It's because I, I think we have a tendency to try to process Jesus through us rather than us through Jesus. Here's what I mean. We, we look at our lives and it doesn't look the way we want it to, the way we thought it would, the, the, the way we've imagined the blessed life to look, whatever it may be. And our assumption is, okay, well, how do I fit Jesus into this? We're processing Jesus and trying to explain Jesus through our lives rather than the other way around. Of looking at Jesus and saying, okay, that is is the blessed life. That's what life is all about. Seeking the kingdom, all these things, following in his steps, walking according to him, trusting him listening for His Spirit to lead me and guide me? Let me process myself through Him and see what I find. Let let me process myself through what He says about me, what He has declared about me, who He says I am, who, who this loving Father that He came to reveal to me, who does He say that I am? See, so often... And, and, and youth, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it like this. So often we're just teenagers with God. And as soon as our father says that he likes something about us, we never do it again. And we're like, well, that, instead of listening to what our father says about us and leaning into it and rejoicing that we have one that we can trust who loves us that much. And so we often miss it. And and especially when this involves our suffering. Because we struggle to imagine any scenario in which suffering might yield something positive. Even as we proclaim the gospel, we struggle to imagine how how, how suffering and being rejected could somehow be united to the Father, to being about the Father's business. Even though that's what we see with Christ, and even though He tells us repeatedly, if you come with me, you're going to suffer. Why? Because we're going to be about the Father's business together. And, and the world's not so into that. But you'll be secure. But you'll have hope. But you'll, you'll have your truest identity in me. So come with me. So that's the first thing. We, we often don't understand what Jesus is doing. And, and here's the second thing that we need to press down into our lives. Even when that's the case, even when we don't get it, we can be certain of this. Jesus is always about the business of his Father. Always. Uh, always in the hardest moments of your life Jesus is about the business of his father for you that can be really 
a, a tough pill to swallow, can't it? But that's the reality. And that's what we need to remember. Not, not to excuse pain, not to, to be stoic and act like it doesn't hurt, not to act like life isn't hard. But to remember, I've not been forgotten. I've not been abandoned. Jesus is still about his father's business. Even in fill in the blank. He must be. It's, it is necessary that he be about the things of his father. He can't be otherwise. He can't be otherwise. This is the point of the story in Genesis 50 when Joseph's brothers come to him and they're scared. And he's able to process himself through through. Christ through God rather than the other way around. He's able to to then look at his brothers and see that, yeah, God was about his business in this. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good to save many people from dying. This is the point of of Romans 8.28 where where Paul tells us that he works all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. This is the point of the comforting and beautiful doctrine of God's providence. That that Jesus in our lives is always about his Father's business. The redemption of his people. The restoration of the image of God in you and I. The equipping us to truly love neighbor and God fully. I I may not be able to explain the ins and outs of of whatever it is that you're going through in your life right now, but here's what I can assure you. In the midst of it, and for you and your good, Jesus is about his Father's business. It's okay to go to him with honest confession. Notice, Notice he didn't reject Mary and Joseph when they came and said, why did you treat us this way? He went home with them. He'll do the same with you. And in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your pain, you can go to him and say, well, what's going on here? And you can honestly confess your fear that he's forgotten you, that he's rejected you. All, you can, and what happens? He comes home with us. Because God always, our Father always responds to us. What Jesus revealed to us about the Father is that he always responds to honest confession with mercy. Always. See, the glory of the gospel is that when we act like Mary and Joseph, Jesus comes home with us. That's the beauty of his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that when we come and honestly confess that that you send your son home with us. That you say, hey, there's someone that needs you. Go to them. Be with them. Care for them. And so, Father, as you do that, even this morning, as you send Jesus home with us, by your Spirit, 
might we learn to do what Mary and Joseph did and store all of these things up in our heart. That we might draw on them as a deep well of life. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.